I just wanted to begin right away in the series and just talk about this idea that, you know, you can come across some people who are quite strong. They're very bold and confident. They, they come off that way. And then at times, when push comes to shove, they actually bend, bow, and they break to the pressure of someone else's opinion. You ever notice that? You, ever, you had some people where you kind of go, wow. They, and then all of a sudden, at a certain point, someone they may look up to or they may think highly of or whatever begins to kind of question the value and they, they, they fall to it. Well, Peter seemed to have that kind of thing going on in his life a little bit. At one point, he's standing by a fire watching Jesus who's on trial and there's a bunch of people around and there's a servant girl. And just prior to that, not just even 24 hours before that, Peter is at a, a, a table, that last supper with Jesus, who is talking about he's going to go die. And Peter says, I will die with you and for you. I'll go whatever it means. And then it's just a few hours or so later. And, and you have to say this about Peter. All the other apostles, all the other disciples, except for possibly John, scattered Peter was there at the fire. It's pretty bold, pretty strong. Until this little servant girl said, I think I saw you with one of them. And, and a little servant girl could cause him to capitulate on some values he had just stated prior to that. There's another scene in Peter's life. Peter was used of God. He's on this, this, this rock on his and really on Peter, on his faith, as we see in the more evangelical tradition, and you can even go on the revelation that comes in this, I will build my church. And so Peter is the first one who is, is working through this, and at one point he has this vision, and this vision he sees Cornelius, and he has this really strange vision where he begins to realize that God is not just bringing this good news to the Jews, but actually the Gentiles, and Peter fighted it and fought it and, and, and couldn't get his hand out, and finally went to Cornelius, and there is he's, he has this vision, and he sees all this stuff, and he comes and he realizes that faith wasn't about what you ate and didn't eat, but faith was about what was happening in your heart in relationship to Christ who brings you into relationship to the Father in heaven and he began to understand that it's about Jesus and it's a heart filled with the love of God's spirit and it's about grace and freedom and you live only by one law and, and one law only and that is love that comes from Christ to the center of our being. And so Peter's in Antioch. He has this what I call earth-shaking experience, this foundation-shifting understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to bring others who are on the outside in. And they're having a potluck in Antioch. And he has gone through it, and he's sitting and he's eating with some of his Gentile friends, probably chewing on a good piece of bacon. When some hot shots from Jerusalem come in, and Peter goes, excuse me, guys, and leaves his plate and goes and sits with the Jews. Why does Peter do that? So I thought about that. I thought as I was processing through this whole series, because like me and maybe some of you, Peter's an approval addict. He's an approval addict. The series I've titled Acceptable Addictions is not because some kind of a addictions are acceptable. In fact, 
In, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. It's a very interesting view on all the things in life. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, he says again, but I will not be mastered by anything. Nothing will cause me to live in an addictive pattern and way in life. And I've titled this series Acceptable Addictions because I find in my life that there are some things that I'm not even aware of. I'm not even necessarily consciously aware of in the moment that I'm addicted to and they're not acceptable in the eyes of God. And beyond the things that I might not be aware of that God might be revealing to me through his word and through other people, community of faith, There are some things even that I might be somewhat aware of, but as you look at this this cover, there's kind of a gray area. You go, I don't know. Kind of things like we'll talk about, like control. You know, am I controlling or just trying to make sure my kids are doing what is right, helping them to achieve what they really want, to become the best basketball player in the world. You know what I mean? And after a while, they go, Dad, I didn't really want to do that anyway. There's this idea of control and when does it become gray? Gossip? Am I really gossiping? I'm just telling you like it is. This is just really... Where's that area where we cross over? Taking offense. I'm really looking forward to talking about this because I have, throughout my life, learned how to take offense. I don't know if you have. How easy it is to be offended by a comment or a remark... Or you might just say, I'm just merely sensitive to a particular area. And if you just understood my history, you'd get it. Or greed, how do you separate yourself from a materialistic-driven culture? Approval, which we're looking at today. Why do I do what I do? Am I merely just being sensitive to others and trying to fit in and make sure things don't, you know, I don't want to rock the boat? Or am I failing to do what I know I should do Due to fear. This morning we're talking about this idea of acceptable addictions in an area that we may not be aware of. You may not even be aware of it. Or you may have seen it and God's bringing it further to light. And maybe in this message will actually help you learn some things to move through it. I'm going to basically talk about a few things, you know, some causes. We'll do that quickly, the cure, and then we'll talk about some choices that I think are important to make. Author John Ortberg in his book, The Life You Always Wanted, writes, why is it so, we often respond so strongly to criticism? I believe it reveals a serious addiction in many of us. He continues, I refer to what might be called approval addiction. Some people live in bondage to what others think of them. And the addiction takes many forms. If we find ourselves getting hurt by what others say about us, we probably have it. If we habitually compare ourselves with other people, we probably have it, he writes. If we live with a nagging sense that we aren't important enough or special enough or we get envious of another person's success, we probably have it. If we keep trying to impress important people or need to talk about the important people we know, kind of name drop, we probably have it. And if we're worried that someone might think ill of us, should he or she find out we are an approval addict? (laughs) We probably are. 
Let me just share with you some warning signs. Buy some questions. This will help you kind of tease out, you know, is this, is this a part of my life? For instance, the past six months, how many times did you worry about being liked at the office or with you're out with a group of friends or when meeting new people? Standing in front of the mirror for an hour. No, anyway. In the past month, how many times have you been concerned about something damaging your reputation? Have you ever avoided returning an item to the store, sending back a food in a restaurant or anything else to avoid confrontation? How many times do you let other people make decisions in your relationships? Did you choose your occupation or are you stuck in a job that you don't really like, but you do it to please your parents or someone else? In the past few months, how many times have you been in a group and you wanted to express your opinion, but you didn't? You didn't because you were worried about what others would think. And if you found yourself saying yes quite often to these questions, it may be that this is a really good talk this morning. Hopefully for you. Because like Peter you may want to pay attention to those times and places you find yourself feeling and fearing or overly concerned with what others think about you. Now on the other hand, I, I have to say this. If, this. if this describes you, you are probably living with some people in your world that you just wish they had an ounce of that in them, right? You know, you just wish they would go, man, I wish you were concerned just a little bit about how you dressed. I, I wish you wouldn't bring that back to the, you know, I mean, the door swings both ways. And there can be some reactions that cause that to happen. Some of it can be just very healthy. Joyce Meyer writes in her book called Approval Addiction, there is an epidemic of insecurity in society today. Many people suffer from an unhealthy need for affirmation. There is a healthy need to be affirmed. But she says they are not capable of feeling good about themselves. For some, the quest of appro- for approval becomes an actual addiction as they seek self-worth from the outside world because they can't find it from within. In the cause of approval addiction, there's just a number of reasons, and I'm just going to share just a couple of them, and I'm not going to get into this. But Joyce Meyer, she's quite open about it. She says her need for seeking approval from others was the result of feelings of rejection and low self-esteem. It's often a place where this arises. And she talks about it due to being raised with an abusive father and a dysfunctional family. And, And shares quite readily that even though outwardly she looked strong and acted boldly, inwardly, the insecurity drove her to be affirmed by others. Now, what I want you to understand, people who are approval addicted, or at least seem to be that tendency, they're not necessarily weak people. You need to, they're not necessarily weak people. CEOs, successful actors, athletes, politicians, and you can name it, business people, can have that approval addiction. It might, can be what can drive them. I remember a number of years ago watching a special on TV about Brian Gumbel, and in that special he talked about how he was driven. He would, he would get maybe four hours of sleep a night, and he was driven to find approval of his father who was no longer living. For some people, their personality types wire them for this. If you've taken a DISC personality inventory, you'll know the high I's and the S's. And some give the test this way, like otters or, or they call them golden retriever types. And they may struggle with this a bit more than some of the D's and C's, the lions and the more beaver-like 
personality type. I, I was with someone this spring who does a lot of um, consulting with Patrick Lencioni, who does a lot of, he's kind of the consulting guru for a number of um, uh, businesses, um, top-line businesses. And, and this person gives enagrams, which they do through Lencioni's thing. And so they said, why don't you take these, which is another kind of personality type. They give you nine different personality types. And, and from that, I decided, well, I'll get an any a thought every day because what it's to help you do is to, to move past some of your limitations. So I got this one not too long ago, and it said this, what would happen if you achieved nothing today but simply enjoyed being alive? Would others still respect and value you? Would you value yourself? And I just went, ouch. I remember back when we had, you know, around Easter time, I was on a couple months, and I was just really sick, and for a while I sat in bed for about a week and a half, and I kept thinking that the people at the church are going to think I'm a slouch. I, I don't know what you might be hooked into or how it happens, but I want to share with you the causes are many, and it's helpful to know the roots of those things, but we're not going to take any more time on that. I think that's something that through your life you can learn. It's helpful to know and understand, like any disease, it's helpful to know those things, but it may be wise to understand it, but what you do need to know is that you need to cure, and you don't have to understand it to get the cure. That's a really cool thing. I mean, it's helpful to know what caused the infection. That's a a good thing. It's, It's helpful to know how you got the injury, but more important now is how you apply the remedy, right? And there is a path to freedom, a sense of security, and it's found in God. Henry Nouwen puts this issue in perspective. He says, at issue here is the question, to whom do you belong? He writes, to whom do I belong, to God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirit. A little success excites me. He says, and you may feel this way, often I am like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. Anybody feel that way? Who do you belong? I found no amount of, in, of what I call external praise or approval can actually fill the black hole of insecurity in my own being. Be very honest with you. I, my, my wife has tried to fill that, and it's exhausting. I don't know what it is, but we're all made with some kind of black hole, There's some area in our life that God only can fill. Lewis Meads writes this, he says, he's, as a Christian psychologist, one of the fir- fine arts of gracious living is the art of living freely with our critics. When we have the grace to be free in the presence of those who judge our lives and evaluate our actions, we have Christ-like freedom. I love that truth. One of the fine arts of gracious living is the art of living freely with our critics. I love this truth because that's exactly how Jesus lived. And what I want to do is take a few moments just to show you the cure as you see it lived out in the life of Jesus. I could give you all kinds of scriptures on this, but I'm just going to choose about four of them and have us kind of just walk through them and listen to them. And and you'll see how as you watch this, everything Jesus did in his life was evaluated. When he went into his public ministry, everything was scrutinized. It would have been so easy for him if he was looking for the external approval, affirmation of those around him to be like that, that rudder, that reed that just blows back and forth. 
But I love how poised Jesus was in the face of the critics. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. You can look up here. There's Bibles in the pew. If you brought a Bible, you can kind of follow along. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, which is an incredible thing. You know, your faith can bring people to Jesus. Your faith that you evidence at work by the way that you live your life, if you live it with joy, and they see something different in the peace in your life, they see your life expressing love and being good to those who are maybe not good to you, your faith can actually lead them to Jesus. So these guys lead them to Jesus, and it's this... When they saw him come and they heard him say that your faith um, and take heart because of their faith, your sins are forgiven, he, he says at this, some of the teachers of the law, verse 3, said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. I believe it's in the message where it says they were with, they were with gossiping, gossipy whispering. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. But, so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe because they praised God because they looked at someone standing before them who lived with authority. They lived with an authority that came from the Father in heaven and they weren't swayed. He wasn't swayed. Just imagine if Jesus was approval addicted. You wouldn't find these kind of scenes happening. Mark 10, 13 through 16. Here he is. He's with his peers. It could be like his work buddies or maybe his buddies. You know how easy it is to, to fall to peer pressure around things that you believe? So here is Jesus. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place in his hands on them. But his disciples, his buddies, his peer group, his work group, they rebuked him. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children, little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He's indignant as he stands in this truth. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Jesus is even free from the approval of his family. That's one of the most difficult things because we do grow up having this desire as children to prove our, to find that approval in our parents and in others. You can be still living that out, trying to find your approval in your spouse. And when you live that way, it creates all kinds of tension in the marriage. That's just not how it was meant. I mean, there's a certain amount of affirmation, but if you have a black hole where you need this to be filled and it just can't be backfilled with someone else's affirmation, you're going to find yourself with some real difficulty. It creates difficulty in all relationships. So Jesus, it says, then Jesus, in verse 20, entered a house, Mark 3, 21, and verses 31 through 35. He begins, that's just in verse 20, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So here's the ministry of Jesus. It's, it's just moving so much that he can't even find time to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, they went to take authority over him, for they said he's out of his mind. Can you imagine that? Yeah, so you're, you're sitting, you know, you're, you're doing something, and your family's coming to you, and you're saying, hey, look at you're crazy. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, verse 31, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, you know what, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. 
And I'm sure he's gotten the wind or the, Lord, the, the Spirit of God revealed to him. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And then one of my personal favorites, because, you know, we all, we all bow in some difficult situations. Go, oh, I don't know if I want to rock the boat here. Mark chapter 3. One through six, because you have these pictures of Jesus who is meek and mild, right? You know, some of the pictures you see of Jesus, he's just, uh, he's just meek. Oh, he's so mild. You know that kind of thing? <laughs> you don't get the pictures sometimes of Jesus courageous and gutsy. And so here you get this picture in Mark 3, which is courageous and gutsy. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Here's a guy sitting in the church service, and, and he's looking around, and Jesus had maybe had read Scripture. We're not sure what has happened there. But some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They're now coming to accuse him. So they watched him closely. They were evaluating his every move down to the slightest thing. They wanted to cut the hairs. They're going to find in him what was wrong. <laughs> They were watching closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Because you don't heal people on a on the Sabbath day. That's work. We all know that's not something you do if you're really following God. I mean, you don't. And so Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, I just, I mean, he looks at the guy and goes, stand up in front of everyone. This is guts. And Jesus then asked him, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? This guy standing here, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill. And here's how... I, here's how a bunch of cowards they were. People I believe with no integrity, manipulative schemers, backroom gossips, hungry for power, fearing of losing their position. They remained silent. That's not a hard question to answer, is it? And Jesus, he looked around at them in anger. He looked around at them in anger. Jesus, gutsy, courageous, gets angry. Not for himself, but always in protection of that which is being abused. Deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And you would think everyone would go, that is the greatest! But verse 6 says, then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot catches with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, if you don't understand this, you have to understand the, the Pharisees were on the conservative. They would have been like the right-wing Republicans way over here. And, and the Herodians were the left. They were like the Democrats way over here. But they find someone greater than themselves. They're going to lose both their seats of power because of this person. They get together and they say, we got to get rid of him. So I have to ask you this question. If you're just hearing and reading these stories, why? What allowed Jesus to live with such freedom from criticism, from the opinion of others, not to be swayed in the wind of people's anger or judgment? How did he live this way? I find it's interesting. Even his critics could admit his integrity with an intention of tricking him one time. The Pharisees and the Herodians come together. They ask a question about paying taxes, and here's how they begin it. They're buttering him up, but they know it's true. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay not attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Set up for the trick question. So here we got a question. The Herodians here, who likes Caesar? 
Pharisees here who are not crazy about Caesar, tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? To divide the group, to get Jesus to make and take sides with it. And Jesus just says, you know what's on the image of that coin pay to Caesar? What's on the image stamp on your heart? You pay to God. One takes a huge precedence to the other. Here's the cure. Even though they were aware there's no approval addiction within the heart of Jesus, and even though we know that Jesus was tempted, he was tempted in every way like you and me to, to find approval. He never sinned. Jesus, both fully God and fully man, never sinned. Here's the cure. Jesus was secure first and foremost in his Father's love and approval. What mattered most to Jesus was his heavenly Father's opinion. The, the, the cure, the only cure I know that, that begins to move, begins to backfill that hole for need of approval is, is when you come into a relationship with Jesus. If you've never experienced the love of Jesus Christ where you begin to walk with him and to know him and to understand his approval and his truth of who he says you are, I want to tell you one of the greatest things in the world is to understand that you don't have to keep trying harder and harder to get his approval. And this whole Christian life that you're sitting here and hearing about today is not about you doing one more thing to get God to say, good job. It's all about the fact that on the cross, he, through his death, made your approval possible because of what he did, not you. It's all in his love for you, and all you need to do is to repent, understand that, and trust that. That's the gospel. And when you, when you enter into that relationship, you've never done that, I invite you to do that, to just simply pray, Lord Jesus, would you begin to be the one where I find um, the approval in the grace and the love that's already been given, all that stuff we've been singing about this morning. And I'm going to walk in that love and understand I'm going to blow it, I'm going to mess up, but I realize that I need you. And I, I, I'm going to look and I, it's going to be okay that others affirm me, but the approval for who I am is going to come because of what you see in me and what you have done for me. And I'm going to walk in that. That's the only cure I know. And then that cure begins as you begin to grow strong in that and secure in it and vital and you grow in your relationship with the Father God through Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit filling that hole. You will find in time that that approval of his approval and his love will become greater than the approval of others. Now I'm going to share with you some choices that are really important. These are steps to help you overcome it. If you make a commitment to say that I am going to, to walk in relationship with Jesus and I'm going to grow strong in this relationship, I'm going to, get to, I'm going to, I'm going to come and, and understand his word, I'm going to come to places like this where I can begin to be filled with this, I'm going to begin to praise God and worship God with my life, I'm going to surround myself at, at times, not always because you need to still reach out to others, but surround yourself with, with growing, discerning believers who can speak in your life to help you to grow. If you've made this commitment, then this commitment is a series of choices and these choices will help you become less of an approval addict. And the first one is just simply this. And, and these are going to come out of um, a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because this was a church that had all kinds of approval addictions. And to overcome the need to please, if you want to put it that way, to overcome the need to please, here, here's what he says. Hold criticism as a very small thing. You need to hold criticism. One of the first choices you need to make, it's all a matter of perspective. You have to say, who's, who's, who are you going to allow to be big in your life? The Apostle Paul writes about this. He says in chapter 4, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you 
or by any human court. Isn't that great? I do not even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. The message puts it this way. It matters very little to me what you think of me, even less where I rank in popular opinion. I don't even rank myself. Comparisons in these matters are pointless. The Lord makes that judgment. Now, I want you to know, Paul didn't say it is nothing. It mattered to Paul what they thought of him, but it didn't matter too much. It was a very small thing. And one of the choices you you have to come back to is what does God say about me in his word? Because that's the big thing. Criticism can no longer rock your boat. When you're tethered to the anchor of his love and truth, it holds you secure. And you begin to say the big thing is what Paul says, it is the Lord who judges me. Because he, even Paul, was not overly concerned about others' approval. Approval addicts are always, I think, at the mercy of others' opinions. There's an old preacher's story about this guy. He says, I was leaving my last church. He is talking about this. And, and a woman at the farewell reception was weeping. And he said, I said to her, don't be sad. I'm sure the next pastor will be better than me. And holding back her tearful sobs, she looked at him. And she said, that's what they said the last time, but they just keep getting worse. <laughs> I mean, approval addicts are always at the mercy of others' opinions. Imagine receiving criticism or judgment as a very small thing, making this choice. Imagine being liberated from the need to impress anyone. Try and imagine in your mind your sense of worth no longer resting on whether someone notices how smart, attractive, or successful you are. I mean, you always think about that. Imagine being able to actually feel love towards someone who expresses disapproval towards you. I remember when I learned that a number of years ago where I went, I felt this disapproval and I go, I, I started to learn, I go, you know what? And, and the truth that began to ring in my heart from, from God, the bigger truth was, guess what? We're still going to spend eternity together, so I'm okay. I love you. That's a hard thing to do. But imagine that. Imagine not hating or disregarding even what they say, but actually being free to love and to value and to even listen to what they say. Hold all criticism, Paul says, as a very small thing because you are much bigger than anyone's judgment or criticism or disapproval. You are God's child and you listen to what he says about you. Another choice is holding criticism outside of yourself. Paul didn't, you know, he, he did say their opinion was a very small thing, but he also learned, I believe, the art of living with criticism and, and being able to take it and evaluate it outside of himself, hold it, and be able to go, is this of you, God, or not? One of the most practical and helpful tools I received in my spiritual journey when I was with a therapist a number of years ago, he taught me this little lesson. He said, Kevin, I want you to practice holding um, what is said out here. I want you just to get... And so he had me do it. and said, I just, I'm going to say some things. I want you to hold it and catch it. And he said, then when you kind of do that, you catch it and you hold it. Because you're going to have some people in ministry, you're going to have some people who are going to come with some very harsh things, some very hard things you're going to hear, and I want you to hold it out here. And you even have to know this, Kevin, that sometimes in rocks there are specks of gold. Even those who are your worst critics may have some truth. 
The rock itself might be the little T of their truth, but there may be some big T's. So what are you going to do about that? And he said, I want you to hold it here. One of the greatest lessons you can learn is not only to hold it as a very small thing, but to begin to hold it out here. And you hold it out here. And when you begin to hold it out here, you find that you can take it. And he says, what I want you to do is don't throw it away, but take it and look at it and listen to it and, and pray about it if need be. If it's something way off and you don't need to. And, and ask, is there, is, there, is there an uppercase T? Is there something, God, you want me to learn? And let the Spirit of God reveal to you what he wants you to know and understand. But don't let it get into your heart right away. Learn to discern. Stay in God's word. Keep doing what you're doing where you take time, you get alone and you pray and you read God's word and you listen. And stay in in a community of people who are discerning and growing and let them speak into your life. And keep growing. There's some things that are just habits that are really useful. Um, One is that you listen which takes a lot of humility, and it's just something I continue to press into. Last year, um, I, just, I started reading some books on it because I just am saying, God, how do, I, how do you do this well? Another reason you hold it out there is because you, you can listen, and then there's, you, don't, you don't overreact. There's a great passage. You might want to memorize it in James. It says, be quick to listen first, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because those other two are reactive patterns. And then talk about it. When you're no longer in that reacting place, you're frustrated, talk about it. Learn from it. Pray about it. And here's a tough one. Thank God for it. Dr. Pritchard, a guy who writes on this, explains the, the criticism may be way off base, but God intends it for some good purpose in your life anyway. Seen in that light, your critics are God's servants for your good, so thank them even if you disagree with what they say. And then he says this, great, forget about it. This whole idea of withholding criticism within yourself, I think we're our own worst critics. We, we believe something in our heart. Our beliefs is really what's important here. We believe something in our hearts and we look for someone to validate it. Psychiatrist David Byrne says this, it's not another person's compliment or approval that makes us feel good. Rather, it is our belief that there is validity to the compliment. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. It's not another person's compliment or approval that makes us feel good. Rather, it is our belief that there is validity to the compliment. So I had a friend of mine this, uh, a number of summers ago when I was in graduate program, he was in a graduate program. He worked with a woman who would come up to him on a regular basis and say she wanted to marry him and she just couldn't think, stop thinking about his body. Well, as a young man, that's a pretty high compliment. And, and you know, we would talk about this and... Until um, you understand where he worked, you'll, you'll see the difference here. His internship was at the Spiro Agnew Mental Health Center in Dorchester County, Maryland, kind of Chesapeake Bay area. And the woman was heavily medicated, had lived there for 20 years, and would say the same thing to every male staff. And actually on her less lucid days, she would say the same thing to plants and inanimate objects. Obviously, he didn't get a lot of approval mileage from her compliments because it is our belief that their validity is, there is validity in their compliment, somewhat based on their character. Jesus believed God's approval was more valid than anyone else's approval or criticism. You can write this down because I think this is really important. People's opinions are powerless until we give them power. People's opinions are powerless until we give them power. We are not passive victims of anyone else's opinion. 
They are powerless until we validate them. And then the last is this, holding criticism till later. And if Joel and the team come, because I'm just going to just share this last point. Paul is so great. I love what he says. He says, so, and this is from the message, so don't get ahead of yourself, verse 5. Don't get ahead of the Lord Jesus and jump to conclusions with your judgments before all the evidence is in. Get that? Don't get ahead of the Lord Jesus and jump to conclusions with your judgments before all the evidence is when he comes. Hold it till later. You know, part of it is holding what's within you and, and saying, is this really something they validate? This is a belief I have. So God, you have to begin to retrain my belief here. You've been holding it out here so you can understand it. You hold it as very small. But the last thing is you wait till later sometimes. There's a time later where God might reveal the reality of it. And he says, when he comes, when Jesus comes, he will bring out in the open and place in evidence all kinds of things we've never dreamed of, inner motives and purposes and prayers, says Paul. Only then will any one of us get to hear the well done of God. It's amazing to me how people can accomplish extraordinary things and feel like a failure because in the moment they let the criticism, they let the self-doubt in, they let it in. And, and I, listen to this person's assessment of their life. I have done nothing. I have not, no ability to do anything that will live in the memory of mankind. My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations. Ceaseless rejected prayers. These words were written toward the end of this man's life, John Quincy Adams former U.S. United States President, Secretary of State, Ambassador and Congressman, as well as father of generations of children and grandchildren who impacted our nation and God's kingdom. And I just go, obviously John was having a bad day and wasn't listening to holding this till later. I just want to say in closing, last week was such a cool thing. I, I no longer call this the worship in the park. The, who was there last week? Raise your hand if you were. I call it now the baptism in the park. That's how we will refer to this in the future as the baptism in the park. Okay? Because I had one line left to say, one, one final line to say, and it poured. And I have to say, in my heart and my spirit, I was asking God, why? Why did you? Why did you do that? Because people were looking at their cell phones and radars. You know, I knew as I was speaking, there were people going like this. And there was nothing there until the moment the cell cloud formed over us and just dumped on us. It just seemed strange. I said, God. And then later in the afternoon, Rule Nygaard sends me a thing. He goes, I didn't know we were going to a baptism. And honestly, folks, it wasn't a Presbyterian sprinkling. It was a full-blown revival immersion. And there are things in the word of God that says signs, wonders, and miracles. There are things that are significant or significant, and I think that's significant. I think God is pouring out his spirit, his love, his, his work on us. And I am so thrilled. And so, this baptism in the park, I'm just going to share with you what Jesus says. He wants you to relax and only listen to him. His approval of what's going to make the difference in your life. I just say this because I go mornings often in my own quiet time where I just got to go back and go, God, I write. It's what you think that's most important here. I remember just looking at that. And I, I had one sentence to say. If God who created and rules hundreds of galaxies, each filled with trillion plus stars, who also cares for birds and flowers, won't he care for you? Anchor yourself in his love and what his word has to say about you. And guess what? You will fall. You will find yourself wanting approval and coming and going, oh, 
but go back to the love and let it cause you to grow strong and firm. Amen.